morning, open up in your word, not to Genesis, but to 1 Peter. Um, it's the end, of the end of the year here. A lot happens at the end of a year. One of the things that we're obviously doing is celebrating the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God to earth as a man. And so I'm sure for you guys this, this week and these last weeks or days of the, of the year will be significantly devoted to that and remembering that event. And certainly we, you know, we want to preach the word and connect with folks where they are. And it will be a possibility that we preach sort of Christmas-related messages this week and next. Or the other possibility would be uh, it's, it's the close of a year and we're about to transition into a new year. And uh, as I prayed through what we would be emphasizing in these last two weeks, I felt more directed by the Lord to, to help us transition well into a new year and to close out this year uh, and to anticipate what God desires to do in our lives for next year. And, and we've been spending quite a bit of time through the fall with the other leaders in the church and praying and asking God for his direction and desires for the coming year. And, and we, we continue just to feel this sense from God that this coming year is, is going to be more about us going deeper uh, than perhaps our intentions in the past few years have been to go wider. And uh, both of those are biblical, and we should be pursuing them both simultaneously, actually. But sometimes we emphasize one more than the other, and we, we feel like the church is in a place where it's needing some emphasis on depth. It's needing some emphasis on individual lives who are walking with God, going deeper into the things of God. And uh, we're going to benefit wonderfully from a study of 1 Peter. Anytime we get into the Word and just study it, we're going we're to benefit greatly. But this morning, I, I, I want to look at a dynamic in 1 Peter that's true all over the Bible. And I want us to, to learn to see it. So as much as I'm going to use 1 Peter to do this, I'm not going to so much teach into 1 Peter a lot, but I want us to kind of get us prepared to study 1 Peter and to be able to benefit from it, right? Uh, how many of you guys have ever, like, done whitewater rafting? Wow, a bunch of you guys, more than I would have thought. Uh, you know, I don't know, if you, if you go out west, you have these incredible rivers out there, you know, Colorado River, the Snake River. Uh, if you've ever done any, I've never done any whitewater rafting, but I've you know, seen these incredible scenes of folks who go and, you know, they launch out. And there's a, there's a part of the river that it's, you know, it's picturesque. The water is moving slow. It's clear. You can almost kind of just relax in the raft and take in the scenery. The river kind of floats you along by itself. Minimal amount of steering, if any. You know, just kind of a little paddle here, paddle there. And and, and then the, the, the river narrows a little bit, and the pace picks up some. And what really makes the pace pick up is the, the change of altitude as things begin to go down to lower altitudes and, and kind of get a little bit of a movement going on now, requiring a little bit more of you paying attention, a little bit more paddling involved. And, but you're still enjoying things, not moving too quick. But you know what's coming. What's coming, and the reason why you took this trip was, uh, you know, this is not a river in Louisiana in a canoe, you're in a raft and, and you're looking forward to the rapids. You know, there's going to be some white water going on. That, you ever look at the difference between somebody who's rafting in white water versus one who's just gotten in and it's picturesque and you're sort of in the small lake that's dumping down into the river? Okay, the guys who are white water rafting, now they look like they are paddling for their lives. Moving much faster, there's rocks here and there. You feel like you get slammed against the shore. And so even though you're an amateur, you are digging in. You are hanging off the front of that raft, and you are just digging into this thing. All of that is, is life on the Colorado River, right? But various experiences as you travel through those terrains. Well, you know, the Bible is kind of that way, right? The whole Bible's that way. Book to book is that way. First Peter is that way. There are passages that you read through that you just sort of take in the beauty of the scenery and the river just kind of carries you along and you just appreciate what you're reading and what you're hearing. And, and then there's other passages that you're reading through require a little bit more paying attention, a little bit more interaction with it, a little bit more of a challenge, 
pace is beginning to pick up. And then there's some passages in the Bible that are, that are like the whitewater. Uh, you don't sit back and just listen to them and take them in. You hang off the edge of the boat and paddle violently. You're in this passage in a certain way, and your effort means something. And, and you, of course, the second you step into this God thing with your own effort, you step into the potential that you're going to paddle wrong. You're, you're, you're not skilled at this. You're just learning how to do this. The guy in the back back there, he keeps telling you what to do, but, but you don't get it. You don't know what half the terminologies mean, and you just keep paddling this thing, and, and you live in fear that we're going to crash into the rocks. You've heard about people that fall off the thing and drown, so you have all these thoughts going through your head. Well, some of the passages in 1 Peter are kind of like whitewater passages, and we're going to get to those. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter has a lot of white water in it. Um, I don't want us to be uninformed. If I'm going to serve as your guide down this river, I don't want you to be uninformed when you get to the white water. I don't want you to forget some other things when you get to the white water either because you need to hold on to them along the way. Let me jump into some white water passages here and just to give you a feel for what's coming. Right, we've, we've charged ahead like a herd of elephants through verse 2, I believe, is as far as we've gotten so far. <laughs> when our grandchildren are in college, we'll be at this verse, verse 13, <laughs> in chapter 1. And this is what we'll be hearing about. Listen to what Peter says. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. All right, so when we get into Peter... We're going to get into a book that starts to unpack this theme of holy living, holy attitudes, holy time use, holy actions, holy relationships and how we deal with one another. Right? So let me just give you a quick running view. I think I put this in your outline so you can read it along with me. Here's where Peter's going to be going. Right? He's going to cover the way we're thinking. He's going to cover our obedience, our conduct, our use of time how we love others, whether there's malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander going on, whether we're abstaining from fleshly passions, our submission to government, our submission to bosses, our submission to unbiblical husbands, our unity and humility, whether we bless those who seek to hurt us and bless those who even slander us, whether we seek to bless them or not. Right? And that's just the first three chapters. All that is going to get thrust before us. Right? So this is, this is whitewater territory. It's moving quickly, and you are hanging off the boat paddling because the Bible's telling you, don't do that or do that. It's telling you, get to the middle, get to the side, dodge that, stop that. So you got effort involved here. Now, here is what I would call some, some unavoidable territory here. If your effort is involved in where your boat is in the river that God's leading you down, then you now have grounds to fail. Everything I just listed off, you can do well or you can do poorly. You can pull it off or you can blow it off. That's a reality. So... What do we do with having to interact with our lives when the Bible speaks up and it expects something from us? Because right? you're going to read these verses. I mean, just the ones we just read. 
It's expecting you to use your time a certain way. It's expecting you to make certain conduct choices. It's expecting you to care for people a certain way. It's expecting you to respond a certain way when you're wronged. Well, what if you don't do that? What if you haven't been doing that? It's the end of the year. Everybody's got a little bit of the year in review kind of thing going on. And if you're reviewing like I'm reviewing, you got a decently long list of regrets. Right? I do. Things another year has gone by faster than I thought it would go by, and I thought I'd be farther along in this category. I thought I would have stopped doing that by now. I thought it would have improved here. I thought my relationships would have been different in this way. And so, you know, there's a lot that you can survey that you may not really like about how things have been going. And you've been a contributor, right? I'm not a victim here. I've been involved. I've created much of these situations. So how are we going to do this in a way that's, that's productive? The Bible's going to call us to examine ourselves. You can do that in a way that, that I'm going to call it unskilled introspection. You, you don't want to take that journey. You want to talk about a dangerous journey? Unskilled introspection is a dangerous journey. But the answer to that is not no introspection. Or the answer can't be, well, I'm just not going to dig deep into my issues. I'm not going to look into my soul. Because, you know, when I do, I, I just feel condemned. I don't feel good about myself and my life, it, it, it becomes paralyzing. Okay, well, the Bible doesn't offer us a non-introspective life. It's never available. So we're going to have to learn to be introspective. And I know you can do this in a poor way. I know many of us do. I, mean, I just talked to somebody recently who was talking, talking about a friend that they know who's walked with Christ, who's had been affected by God, who's affected other people but has gone through a season of introspection and the result of that introspection has caused them to back away from their life and go, I don't even know if I'm really a Christian. I don't even know if I'm really saved. Now, knowing what I know about this person, I would suspect that the problem is that you, you did some unskilled introspection. You, you went into the whole of yourself in an unskilled way, Right? Yeah, if, if you and I were going to be doing some, some cave investigation, right? your life is like a cave, right? It's dark in there. There's issues in there. And some of us just like to stay out of that. But if, if you were going to go into a cave, right, on a famous cave, it's a Carlsbad Caverns kind of a thing, uh, and you were going to go in, right? you're going to go down into this dark hole in the ground, you, you might need to do some things to prepare yourself well. If you were going to go in, right, get this picture in your head, you're going down into a cave. Do you just jump in? Do you just crawl in? Do you just look for a place that you can just, you know, like, oh, that's good footing right there, that's good footing right there, and just down you go? Or would you do this if you were on a bit of a search and rescue kind of a thing? First thing you'd see paramedic perhaps do is he would tie himself off to something outside the cave. Right? He'd tie it. He'd pull on it, he'd make, he'd make sure that that thing is not going to fail when he gets inside that cave. And then, you know, he'd wrap it around and, and down he'd go inside that cave. You know, he'd turn his flashlight on and he'd be trying to look around and find stuff that's there. Because he doesn't know what he's going to find. doesn't know how deep it goes. doesn't know how much of a problem it is. But what he had to do before he went in was to anchor himself to something that was outside of his cavern and something that was reliable and steadfast and wouldn't move. Well, before I descend into the Keith's Bad Cavern, I'm going to need to tether myself to something that is immovable, constant, faithful. I can yank on it. It doesn't move. It doesn't travel with me. It's not generated by me. It's a rock. Right? Now, that's, that's kind of what Peter is going to do here in the beginning of this letter. Right? When we start to read here, and again, I'm not going to unpack any of this. All I want us to see today, I just want us to see this dynamic in Scripture. I'm not going to unpack it from this verse here. But there are dynamics in Scripture, and I'm going to ex- explain this a little bit further. There are indicative statement dynamics in Scripture. There are imperative statement dynamics in scripture, and I'll, I'll define some of that a little further in a moment. 
But an indicative statement is where God just steps in and says, here's the truth. This is the fact. This is true about you. This is true about your future. This is true because I've made it true. This is true because it's a promise that I've made. That's an indicative statement. You don't make it true. You don't contribute to it becoming true. It is true. Then there's imperative statements in the Bible. We just read a bunch of them. It's where they tell us to do things. You do this. You do that. You do this. And you are the feature item in those things. You are the understood subject of those expressions. Well, look at these statements that Peter begins this letter with. Remember in verse 2, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. That's what you are. He's not asking you to become that. He's not asking for your contribution to that. He says you are elect exiles. That's the condition that you find yourself in as a statement of fact. And you are that, as we read in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. And I'm not going to go back and preach the message from a few weeks ago. But you became God's elect according to his foreknowledge. Something in God desired that he would be in relationship with you. So therefore, he initiated, he pursued, he created, and now he's informing you that this is the condition. You don't create it, you don't make it happen, and you're not called upon imperatively to do something. It is what it is, and it's true about you. So that's where Peter begins according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification of who? Of the Spirit. So, so who's in charge of this realm? The Spirit is. Right? So we have the Holy Spirit. Peter preached on the Trinity and how they're involved in our lives. So an indicative statement. Sanctification is a work of the Spirit. We're just being told. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, the obedience dynamic is a bit imperative. The sprinkling with his blood, again, is indicative. It is that which was done for you, right? And we're just being informed about it. And look what happens now in verse 3. As we get past the greeting, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... All right, now you're being informed of a condition that exists within God, not something you create. You don't cause God to be merciful. You don't store up an ability to kind of force God into the mercy category. You're just being informed that there is a condition in God. It's his mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, if you found anything to do in there yet, You're just being told, right? Just being informed about stuff. That's true. And you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's being kept in heaven for you. Okay, you doing anything yet? Right? We haven't touched any imperatives. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And you see, all these statements are about God what God has done, what God promises to do, and what he has made true about us. So we don't want to be spending our time trying to get these things to be true. We would just want to learn to see them in Scripture and accept them that they are true. All right, now let me go into this little dynamic here in Scripture that's, that's called indicative and imperative statements. And if you want a much lengthier look at this, the series that we did a year and a half, almost two years ago, from Ezekiel chapter 36. You guys remember we spent 10 weeks in Ezekiel 36. The series was called Walking in Newness of Life. Uh, it studied in that passage this obscure balance of five indicative statements that God makes that he will do and he promises and one imperative statement that's given to us. And we unpacked a whole lot of this. As a matter of fact, I just kind of pulled this chunk out of some of those notes to, to review with us before we go through First Peter. Indicatives and imperatives, what are they? Well, indicative verb expresses a simple statement of fact rather than something imagined, wished, or commanded. All right, so this isn't a command, it's a, st- it's a fact. An imperative verb, however, expresses a command or an exhortation. So it comes to our life and it tells us to do something. And this pattern is pretty familiar in Scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. And, and what I, I want us to, to learn to notice, 
Learn to see it in 1 Peter as we study through 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a little bit different than Paul in the way in which he does this. But learn to see this. When the Bible turns around and tells you to do something, then, then you should be able to stand on that verse and not reach too far in either direction to find something that it says has been done, something that God has done, something about who God is, something that's true of you. So there's an indicative always within arm's reach, if you will, of the imperative statements in Scripture. You want to learn to see those. We'll learn to see them both in Scripture. Here's a good example. Romans chapter 6. The issue of arguing here is why does a Christian not continue in sin? Christian encounters God. Why, why do we not continue in sin? Well, this is the answer that Paul has given. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know? Right? This is what indicative statements call on us to do. They call on us to know them, which is very critical and important. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, and that word if there carries the punch of since this is true, we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right? Do you, you see this here? There's, there's a reason why you're being told this is true. It's so that you can believe something about the future. If you've been united with him in a death like his, well, then you're going to be united with him in a resurrection like his. But you're told about that which is so that you can believe something that is to come. We know, verse 6, we know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Are you picking up that this is just telling you something that is true? It's informing you what happened when Christ went to the cross and you went with him. And the effect that took place in his life has now been transferred to take place in yours. It's true about you. Verse 7. For one who, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, so there is the indicative statement, the case for which answers why it is that Christians don't continue in sin. Because God has done something and included us in it and changed us. All right, we've been told that. Now within arm's reach of an indicative comes an imperative. Listen to what it says in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, who is doing the doing here? We are. All the others was done by God on our behalf. We receive the good of it. Now, the Bible's telling us, don't let sin reign in your bodies. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, bought, are brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, that's another indicative statement. So twisted together is this indicative imperative dynamic that speaks to us. It's all over the Bible, right? Real quick, Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1 through 3 is concentrated, loaded with indicative statements about what God has done, who he is, and what we have received already. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy 
and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, do you hear anything telling you to do anything yet? Just a lot of informing you about what is true about you. Look in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, can you guys remember that's what Peter sounded like? That's where Peter starts. Right? Suffering, we're going to see in a moment in First Peter. According to the will of God, he who had predestined us or had foreknown us and elected us to be his own. Right? So a real similar indicatives here. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right? You understand? You haven't done anything. This is about what God has done and what you have received. Look over in chapter 2, verse 4. After Paul describes the condition of our lives, our fallenness, our sinfulness, he turns the attention to God and he says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, there's, there's no ladder climbing. Right? There's no, this is not a verse that's telling us, if you'll do some of these imperatives, you'll get to be seated in heavenly places. Right? That, that's a misuse of how the Bible speaks to us. We're called to look and see what is true first. These things are true. You don't get them to become true. You don't make them true. God has made them true. And the backdrop here for these verses is intense. It's intentionally showing us in our worst condition and showing that salvation and the work of God comes to us by grace because the verses that precede this are all about human depravity. They're about how we are disqualified from receiving anything from God so that if we have received something, it must be because of God not because of ourselves. He did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And all these statements that are true, and then we're going to get into verse or chapter 4, and it's going to sound this way, and it's going to sound this way almost to the rest of the book. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look down in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Go over in verse 25. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. And so all these verses now begin to traffic in what you and I are doing or not doing, how we are living, how we are responding to God. And then the rest of Ephesians goes into categories of those activities. And so what, what needs, we need to have a trained eye to be able to see as we read the Bible, these two dynamics in proximity to each other and make sure we understand what it is that each of these dynamics is bringing to us. Indicative statements bring something to us. Imperative statements bring something to us. And we want to make sure we reconcile them because the Bible makes use of them both. Quick little highlight of these two dynamics. Indicatives... Sustain and supply faith. You come to indicative statements, they, they supply faith to us. They sustain our faith by telling us about things that are sure, that are true, that are immovable, that haven't, they haven't gone where we've gone. You know, we've, we've slidden, we've fallen down further into the hole, but, but 
but our rope has stayed steadfast. It's tied to something that will not move. There's a constant. You and I shift. We succeed and fail. We're better one day than others. But indicatives bring faith to us, and they sustain our faith. Indicatives promote and inspire motivation. Right? We become motivated when I find out God has done this. God has promised this. God will meet me in this. The Holy Spirit is at work in sanctification. So when I bump into the fact that I'm, I'm not changing real well in this category, my own resume tells me quit. You're not now, and if you be real honest, you never have been. And the odds are you never will be. Do right, you have any categories like that for you? If you don't, please get in touch with the fact that you do. <laughs> It will be so much more pleasant for everybody who's dealing with you on a regular basis. All of us have issues like that in our life. They just don't move when we push on them and we struggle with them. But I can get motivated if I know that change involves the Holy Spirit. He is the power source. He is the motivator. He is at work. I can get motivated by that. I can get motivated by the fact that whether I succeed or fail at this, my, my relationship with God's not on the line. I'm not going to shove God away from me if I step out to try this and I, and I mess it up bad. If I fail at this one more time, that, that doesn't drive God from me. How do you know it doesn't, Keith? Because the indicatives have already settled that. They've already screamed at me. They've already made their case. So I'm motivated but Keith, you fail at that so much. I know, but I have reason to hope that this time I won't. This time I'll make movement. This time I'm going to succeed. I have reasons from God to believe that's true. Imperatives play a role as well. Imperatives contribute to growth and maturity. They're intended by God to affect us so that we grow. And we mature and we change. Imperatives proclaim God's glory through us. Right? You find a lot of imperative statements hanging around the relational components of our lives. How we are as a church. Whether we have humility and unity and love for one another. You find lots of imperative statements in marriage teachings. Where wives are called to be a certain way and husbands are called to be a certain way. You find lots of imperative statements in the realms of parenting and children. You find lots of imperative statements when it comes to the church and its relationship to the world. A lot of imperative statements there. Why is that? Because every one of those arenas are opportunities for the glory of God to be seen. So when the Bible says, do this and don't do that anymore. Why? Because this declares the glory of God. It declares what God is like. God is like that. And when you do that, you declare that not only is God like that, but God is powerful to over, overcome what you are naturally like. But you're no longer like that because God is on sight now, changing your life and declaring himself through you. Right, so imperatives proclaim God's glory through us. Let me just run through this little diagram here quickly for you. Again, this is stuff in that Ezekiel series if you're more curious about it. Um, if you looked at Abraham's life, you would see the indicative imperative dynamics unfold in his life, right? Real, real quick. Indicative revelation comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. God shows up motivated by his own purpose and his own pleasure and his own mercy and intrudes into Abraham's life. Abraham at this point is living out Ephesians chapter 2. He's depraved. Uh, he, he's not a God worshiper. He doesn't do anything to earn God. And God shows up and he says this, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am going to make your name great. Not because Abraham's great, but because that's how God is. And he bestows mercy on Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Now, Abraham responds in faith. That's all he does. Just believes, okay, God, you said that, and based on who you are, I believe it. Right? So that takes us to step two. Faith receives the indicative revelation, James chapter 2. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? Righteousness. 
Abraham at this point is right with God. He's right with God because God stepped in and said, hey, you, you are right with me, and he received by faith. He's right with God right now. Right? He doesn't go and live the life that he's going to be living in order to get right with God. He doesn't begin to do things like leave Ur the Chaldees and go to another in order to get right with God. He is right with God right now. But he's not done living his life. There's a place now where imperatives are going to begin to spill into his life. Step three, works are produced by genuine faith. He has faith in God, and it produces activity in his life. Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. That's an imperative. God gave him an imperative. Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees. So he's called out in this imperative statement. Abraham when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, as Abraham obeys God in faith, something is happening to him. Right? God has made indicative statements about Abraham, and then God has made imperative statements to Abraham. God has said, Abraham, this is true. This is who I'm going to be to you, and this is a future that you have. Then he makes imperative statements to him. Abraham, go and do this. When Abraham goes and does, the going and doing produces an effect in his life. That's the fourth part. Maturity and growth results from the actions of faith. James 2.22. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Do you see that? His faith actually came under the effect of him obeying imperative statements. God said do, and he did in obedience. And the effect of that was his faith was completed. That word actually means matured. It went on to the next level. Each time, it went on and on and on to the next level. All right, now, what I want us to see here is God has intended for his Bible. And, and, you know, listen, if you're paddling down the river, these verses feel different, don't they? Right, You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That feels different, doesn't it? Then put off that. Love those who mistreat you. Respond with a blessing. Doesn't that sound and feel different to you? I mean, go there and be real. You slander anybody this week? You intolerant of somebody whose sin is just a different color than yours and you had a bad attitude you said something about them up one side and down the other. You got people you're avoiding. You have forgiveness issues. Hey, it's the holidays. You know you're going to have to be around some of those people. Anybody coming to mind now? <laughs> All right, so when the Bible comes along and says, forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. That might be a little hard, huh? All right, now tell me. Does that verse feel different than you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? That belongs to you. You have an incredibly large, rich spiritual bank account. Right? That verse feels to me like the river is moving along and I am in the raft like this. And the scenery is breathtaking. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I feel like I'm hanging off the front of the raft now. And I'm paddling like a madman. And I'm still not sure I'm not going to hit that rock right there. And I'm going to say the wrong thing. And sure enough, I might even fall in. Right? The, The river doesn't feel the same. These verses don't feel the same. But they're all in the same river. And you and I are going to have to kind of go down this river together. So let me, let me just draw in some wiser voices than mine into this conversation so we can understand these dynamics and make good use of them. Tolian Chavidian says, imperatives divorced from indicatives become impossibilities. Gospel obligations must be based on gospel declarations. Sinclair Ferguson, this is so helpful. Read this a few times 
on your own. He says, the great gospel imperatives to holiness are ever rooted in indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives. The apostles do not make the mistake that's often made in Christian ministry. For the apostles, the indicatives are more powerful than the imperatives in gospel preaching. So often in our preaching, our indicatives are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. What we know of God, what we have seen in him, what he has promised to be to us, what he has done to us and for us isn't big enough to us when we go to put on the doing. That's what he's trying to get at here. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. Listen, we've seen our own failure and we've seen the imperatives to holiness and we've lost sight of the great indicatives of the gospel that sustain those imperatives. That's a good definition for unskilled introspection. Right? If you're going to go in to Keith's Bad Cavern, you better make sure your rope is tied and that you are pulling on it constantly as a reminder of what is true while you are discovering it stinks down here. Ooh, what is that? I had no idea that's what was motivating me all this time. And right? if you're going to go in And the Bible's going to call you to go in. But if you're going to go in, make sure you're tied off to those things which are true. He goes on and says, woven into the warp and woof of the New Testament's exposition of what it means for us to be holy is the great groundwork that the self-existent, thrice-holy, triune God has in himself, by himself, and for himself committed himself and all three persons of his being to bringing about the holiness of his own people. This is the Father's purpose, the Son's purchase, and the Spirit's ministry. Right? Now, doesn't that sound just like verse 2 where Peter hung out a week or so ago? Where we got to see the whole Godhead was vested in this work taking place in us. So where Peter starts is informing us of what he's calling us imperatively to participate in is already the work of God in our lives. So it's not just that God is sitting in the bleachers waiting for you to perform. You're foreknown by God. You are chosen by God. The Holy Spirit's about sanctification in your life. Christ is about forgiveness already in our lives. Those works are taking place through the Godhead into our lives before you and I step up to the first tee box. We've got to remember these things are connected to each other. Tony Reinke was commenting on Sinclair Ferguson's message where he spoke these things. He says, Ferguson challenges preachers to root the commands to be holy in the grace of our electing Father, the work of his Son on the cross, and the ongoing work of the indwelling and filling Spirit towards our holiness, right? That's verse 2, before we ever get into the book. The challenge is not to avoid the commands, but make certain our indicatives are strong enough to support them. All right. The Bible doesn't just speak indicatively. As difficult and as dangerous as the white water is, it's unavoidable. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to apologize for the fact that we have to face the imperatives. I know I'm sounding like I am. I'd be wrong if I do, because the Bible never apologizes for it. The Bible moves from indicative to imperative without warning signs, without, ooh, some of you guys are about to fall out the boat. It doesn't, it doesn't do that. Now, we know through experience that some of us fall out the boat when we get to paddling real hard. Um, so we're wise to pay attention to this, but we, we don't want to do a disservice to either side. Right, a couple of more thoughts from some folks. Kevin DeYoung wrote a blog post called The Hole in Our Holiness. 
He says the pursuit of holiness does not occupy the place in our hearts that it should. There are several reasons for the relative neglect of personal holiness. Among conservative Christians, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or exhort Christians to moral exertion. To be sure, there is a rash of moralistic teaching out there. But sometimes we go to the other extreme and act as if the Bible shouldn't advise our morals at all. We are so eager not to confuse indicatives and imperatives that if we're not careful, we'll drop the imperatives altogether. We've been afraid of words like diligence, effort, and obedience. We've downplayed verses that call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling or command us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit or warn us against even a hint of immorality among the saints. There are dozens and dozens of of verses in the New Testament that enjoin us in one way or another to be holy as God is holy. Right? And I know I say this a lot. I do because it's true. Right? This room is filled with left brain, right brain issues. You know what I mean by that? Some people think first with one side of their brain and then the other one has to catch up. And then the other part of the room thinks first with the other side of the brain and the other part needs to catch up. And when you come to the Bible, you go somewhere. You're already on certain territory because you're wired a certain way. So there will be some people who can go into indicative passages and feel one way about them and can go into imperative passages and people feel differently about them. Or there's some people who get around an imperative passage and immediately, immediately what they're first in touch with is themselves and their own failure. That's what's most real to them in that moment. Okay, that would not be everybody in this room, though. There would be some people get in touch with imperatives that just don't care that they're there. <laughs> I don't feel any need to perform them. I'm just, I'm just me, just being me, not paying attention to that. Okay, well, the Bible calls us to read it, go down the river and read and let it take us into these enormous indicative statements from God. And, and I will say this about the, this dynamic. You know, indicative statements are sort of like this will be a good illustration. You'll hang on to this for uh, at least a couple of weeks until you stop playing or your kids stop playing with the toys around their house. Uh, you know, those, the ones that you're getting ready to spend all that money on for them that they're going to play with for two weeks and then break or forget that they own. Um, the ones that take batteries that you have to charge Right? There's this dynamic. No one enjoys charging the batteries. Right? So here's, here's what, at least what I do, as well as my children do when it comes to battery charging, is you, you throw it in the charger for as little amount of time as possible, and you stick it back in the game as quick as possible, and you make use of it as long as possible. And so you kind of end up with this lousy product. You know, it's a remote control car that can, can, can barely, and, and you kick it, and then it rolls. It's like, ah, ah, I'm enjoying it, I'm enjoying it. And, and then it stops and it won't move again. The wheels will barely turn. And the batteries, the batteries need to be charged, dude. But I'm just into using the batteries. I'm not into charging the batteries, man. Okay, well, that's kind of an indicative imperative dynamic. If you don't ever get charged up by the indicatives, you're going to sput and sputter and barely move when you, when you go to do the imperatives. All right, these are related Indicatives charge our batteries, man. You stare into the face of God. That's why we just did 20 weeks on introducing God. Just to get us to look away from human drama, human life, our responsibilities, the mission of the church, me personally, putting off sin. Just stare at God for a little bit. Take in the wonder and the awe. Be amazed. Be blown away. Be affected. Let your heart be warmed. Let your value system get overhauled. Let God mess with you. Begin to meditate on what it is that God has done. I mean, listen, the answer Peter's going to give to these folks who are suffering is going to be all about pick your eyes up from your, your temporary setting and look over there and put your hope over there because what God has done for you in eternity is what you need to be staring at. Right? So you and I need to have our batteries charged. You and I just can't constantly be trying to run around and do, run around and do, run around and do, run around and stop doing, run around and do, run around and change. But at the same time, neither are your batteries called to sit in the charger all the time. 
Your batteries are called to get charged and to do something with them. You and I, we, we can't fall in love with one side of this or the other, okay? You know, there is a tendency, and it's a misuse. It's, it's, not, a, it's not an accurate view of Scripture. It's a misuse of Scripture. There's a tendency to sort of hate the imperatives in the same way that if I use the word law to you today, law. It's like somewhere along the line, we got trained to hate the law. Can, can I tell you something? The Bible never hates the law. Do you actually think God hates the idea that he would be first? You think he's hating that idea? That we'd have no other gods before him and all the other things that flow out of that? Do you think he hates the idea that husbands would be faithful to their wives? That you wouldn't steal from other people? You wouldn't murder folks? I mean, God's just up in heaven hating that, right? The Bible never hates the law. What you've come across is the Bible and Bible writers hating the misuse of the law. That's what you've bumped into. And somebody was sloppy when they stood up and preached in front of you and made you hate the law instead of hating the misuse of the law. What the Bible hates is for you to ever pick up anything that you can perform or do and begin to use it as a basis for which God will now relate to you. The Bible hates that. It's offensive. You understand why it's offensive? Because you were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It was his mercy that showed up in your life and saved you. It wasn't your performance. It wasn't your performance when you were lost and you sounded like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were depraved and hostile to God, an enemy of his. It wasn't your performance then. And it's not your performance now. And the moment you turn the law into a performance mechanism that if you can lump in enough quarters, now God will slowly incline himself to you. Just keep depositing, keep changing, keep becoming more holy. Now, now God is for you. That is so offensive to God. And the Bible hates that idea. It does not hate the law. If you misuse the imperatives, the Bible hates the misuse of the imperatives. The Bible does not hate the imperatives. When you and I pick up imperatives and we start thinking, because, you know, the imperatives in the New Testament become the law for us, the misuse of the law. And so we start reading in here about wives submitting to husbands, and we start having these thoughts in our head that, you know, everything's going wrong in my life because, man, you know, as I, as I do a little introspection and self-examination, I find myself stinking it up in a whole bunch of categories. And, you know, one plus one is two. So me stink, God respond, life bad. You know, that's, this is our theology. It's about as deep as we get. And in that moment, what have you done? You, you've gone down into the cavern without the rope. And you're down there when you get your light on and, and you're going to take this passage home with you and you're going to study it and you're going to read it and you're going to find all the reasons that it's not happening in your life and shine the light over here and you find out it's worse than you thought. And Boy, that's encouraging, right? And if you don't have a rope, I'm just, I'm just curious, how are you getting out? Right? Where's Keith? I don't know. I haven't seen him. I think he fell into his navel, you know. <laughs> Just, he's just lost in himself, lost in introspection. And listen, I've got enough categories where I can find lousy attitude, lousy activity, inconsistency, failure, in, in categories that mean something to me. So I can go away and you won't see me for a while. But, you know, when you, when you pull too hard on that rope, that rope pulls back on you. Right. You get your foot on a ledge down in that dark hole and all of a sudden you slip and fall and that thing jerks you and catches you. If you don't have any indicatives going on in your life, I don't know what jerks and catches you. You might need somebody in your covenant group to step in and give you some indicatives, right? Isn't that what counseling ends up doing? Your world stinks. You're, you're telling somebody in detail how bad it stinks and all that's been going on. If you're paying attention, what they're doing to help you usually is they're reminding you of the indicatives that God has said is true. That's good counsel. That's what that should sound like. 
because you don't want to be an unskilled, introspective person. It's a dangerous, dangerous journey. Let me get this thought before you from D.A. Carson, Douglas Moo. He said, in, in his first letter, Peter writes to Christians in Asia Minor, Minor who are suffering for their faith. He comforts them with reminders of the solid hope for salvation they enjoy because of Christ's death and resurrection. And he challenges them to maintain the highest standards of holy living as a witness to their persecutor. Can you just stop right there? Even in these guys' language here, pick this up. He comforts them and he challenges them. We haven't even gotten out of the same sentence for these guys to say that. He comforts them and he challenges them. You, you see, he comforts them with indicatives and he challenges them with imperatives. And he doesn't apologize for either. Unlike Paul, who often develops a theological point before applying it, Peter mixes imperative and indicative almost from the beginning of the letter. Indeed, apart from the thanksgiving section in, first, in chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, and the stone passage in chapter 2, verse 4 to 10, every paragraph of 1 Peter opens with a command with theology brought in along the way to ground the command. Right, so I don't want to wire you to only see indicative, 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 imperative. Indicative, indicative, imperative. Because what you're going to come across sometimes in the Bible is imperative, and then the indicative comes. But what you have to see is that they're both within proximity to each other. When you stand in one, look for the other. I remember this trick, this meteorological trick. I can't remember now correctly. But when the wind is blowing, if you put your back to the wind, it's low pressure that way, I think. Yes. Right? So if you want to find out where the low pressure and the high pressure is, you just, all you do is turn your back to the wind, and to your left is the low pressure. Right? Well, if you're standing in a Bible passage and it's telling you to do something, Look around it. Somewhere around it is, is an indicative statement that's intended to motivate and strengthen faith so that you and I can actually step up and do that thing. And in the same proximity, if you study indicative statements somewhere and within close proximity to those indicative statements is going to be an imperative statement that when you walk in that, it's going to grow and mature your faith. And God will use that in your life. When you, when you read through, because we're going to do this, and this is, you do know, actually, Matt, go ahead and come up. Um, we're going to read through Ephesians, and we're going to study through Ephesians in a way that's going to actually make us miss something, right? If you did this to Ephesians, right? Remember, Ephesians is a letter. It's going to be read all at once. It's probably going to be considered and studied over time. But when we study it and we do something like this on a Sunday morning, like, I mean, look, we're three weeks and we're out of verse two. Do you all read letters like that? You, know, you don't get to spend six months. We're going to spend six months in chapters one through three. We're just going to just overdose on indicatives. And then, then we'll move into the imperatives. Okay, do you realize the Bible doesn't do that? And it doesn't apologize for the fact that it doesn't do it. Right? I find quickly in First Peter... Movement into activity. I find statements like this in chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Those are not easy categories. This is white water for many of us. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Wait, wait. Peter, what are you doing? You're taking people who need to eat the word like they're newborn spiritual infants and you're telling them to stop doing this, 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 and this? But wait, wait, wait. Why are you loading them up with imperatives? They haven't learned enough about the indicatives yet. Right, that would be, that would make sense to me. But there's no apology here. Right? These dynamics belong together. They don't belong in test tubes apart from each other. They belong together, but they have to be seen for what they are. If you ever reach into an imperative category in order to try to get an indicative to be true, you are hated by the Bible. If you want to wonder what the Bible hates, it hates that. Because the indicatives just got finished being told to you based on God and on who he is. Not based on you and what you're going to do tomorrow or today. Let me just read this, this verse to you. I think I put it in your outline. 
This verse just for me. It's so much First Peter, this one verse. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Do you know how long we could take to study those two words? Faithful creator. Those are indicative-laced words. Those who are suffering according to God's will. God's will is an indicative statement about what God is doing in your life. And then what is it saying? Entrust your souls while doing good. That's, That's one verse that's got both indicative and imperative dynamics to it. So you and I are going to be ever increasing our trust and our hope and our pray and growing and charging our batteries on the, on the greatness of God, on the faithfulness of our creator, on all that he's done on our behalf. And we get around that and we come under the influence as we need to. While we're doing that, the Bible still turns around and says, while doing good. So we don't get to take away one for the sake of the other. They're both in scripture and they're both right in proximity to each other. But I hope, this is the one thing I hope today, that you just can see them now. Maybe many of you already have, but if if you haven't been seeing those things, you've just been reading the Bible like it's red beans and rice and it's just sort of all mixed together. I want you to be able to see the grains of rice. See in scripture the indicative statements from God about you, true. Tie your rope to those things before you go in and hold fast that they're true and get about doing good as well. Let's stand up together. Lord, how how valuable is this for us that we might read your word and see what is there and be affected by what is there and not misuse what is there. Oh, Lord, none of us are exempt from that. God, I pray for grace in coming days. Lord, I pray as we read through and study 1 Peter. God, I, I pray as many are just about the daily practice of Bible reading. Lord, these dynamics, these indicative and imperative dynamics would come off the page now for them. They would read passages and they would see the proximity of one to the other. They would see the necessity of one for the other. And they would see how you would use them uniquely in our lives. So Lord, open our eyes, Spirit, who is at work in sanctifying us. Give us eyes and aid in seeing these things that we might enjoy you and glorify you. Matt, do you have a good song to close? Sin that promised.